Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. All right, so I'm here today with uh, Bill Arnold. Uh, He's part of the University of Minnesota in the Department of Civil, Environmental, and Geoengineering. Uh, so we're going to talk about his research with uh, micropollutants and aquatic systems and other types of uh, anthropogenic chemicals. So, Bill, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. If you would tell me about your background and how you got into this area of research first. Well, I did my undergraduate degree in chemical engineering because I was really interested in chemistry, but I wasn't sure I wanted to be, I'll, I'll say, a bench chemist. And I was looking for applied chemistry, and I thought that engineering meant applied science. And so I went into chemical engineering. And over time, in some classes I took and research experiences I had, I realized that environmental engineering was actually the place where I could take the chemistry and the tools that I was interested in and uh, apply them to problems that would help society and understand the pollutants that I had become interested in, in both air and water. And what, uh, what's your research about today? What are some questions you're trying to answer? We try and answer which chemicals are entering the environment, largely through either wastewater treatment or agriculture or industrial releases, how they transform in the environment and what products they form and how fast, and also the levels that are present in various environmental compartments. Well, how do, how do you do that when, I, I would guess there's hundreds of thousands or millions of potential chemicals in, in water and other, you know, nature systems. So how do you even get the, how do you even start to analyze this? Well, how do we start? So we find chemical, we look for chemicals that we think are going to have an adverse environmental impact or an adverse health impact in one way or another. And some of this is driven by discoveries of others. And some of it's, it's ours mining the literature to find chemicals that we think are interesting. Uh, so some of them are, are, are obvious in some ways in that there are chemicals that are designed to be biologically active. And so these would be things like pesticides, either for herbicides used in agriculture or insecticides used to kill bugs that are eating the plants. And then also uh, antibiotics or pharmaceuticals are biologically active. And then there are some known industrial chemicals. These are like the Superfund chemicals. So solvents and explosives would be things generally uh, caused by the Department of Defense or contamination caused by the Department of Defense. And then sometimes it's consumer chemicals as well. And so disinfectants that we use for household purposes. And kind of a common theme for all of these chemicals is that they wind up in the environment either on purpose or accidentally. And one of the big challenges is figuring out which chemicals are most persistent in the environment or which ones make other chemicals that are persistent. And then whether or not this uh, persistence leads, these persistent chemicals are biologically active. And these are all, you hit the nail right on the head, right? It's a complex chemical space. And you have to pick and choose the problems that you think are most interesting. So do you go by, again, uh, particular chemicals that are, are of interest? Do you go by the concentration in the environment? Um, like, again, how do you pick? Again, there's so many. I mean, how do you, where do you start? 
Yeah, I'm trying to think how how an idea how an idea starts. So I'll, I'll give you one example. Is currently we're looking at quaternary ammonium compounds, and these are largely household disinfectants. And part of the reason we started looking at these was that we knew they were used in large volumes, and that there were chemicals that were being proposed as green solvents that use this chemistry. And then accidentally for us, the COVID-19 pandemic happened, and we were already looking for these chemicals in the environment. And then all of a sudden, the EPA was recommending that everybody use these chemicals to wipe down surfaces to disinfect against the, the, the SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, it was terrible. Virus. It was terrible. I got contact dermatitis a bunch of times from them and inhaling that crap all day. I, I wonder what people in, in nail salons or that work as cleaners inhaling them constantly. I, I've heard that um, the concentrations of these chemicals in their blood could be hundreds of times normal. Exactly. Right. And so there's there's both the human exposure aspect and the environmental exposure aspect of these. And my lab focuses on the environmental one. But I have uh, colleagues that look at the, uh, the, the the human exposure side of these things. And this is one of those cases that's interesting because these are chemicals we've been using for over almost 100 years now. And it's not that these chemicals are inherently bad for using them, but you know we're using a lot more of them than we used to. And also the tools that we have have evolved over time, right? And so now we have better mass spectrometers so we can see levels in the environment we couldn't find before. We can look in, there are people that are looking in household dust to see what's there. And just the molecular tools that are available to understand how they affect people or animals and what kind of responses there might be are much better than they were, you know, 10, 20 or 30 years ago. So it's it's one of the things where even though we have used a chemical for a long time, there's there may be lots of evidence that shows that it's got some level of safety associated with it. As our tools and our knowledge change, it's good to go back and look at, at chemicals, even if we have been using them for a long time. So what have you observed or what experimentation have you done with these plots? So we have some published data on this that show that they're present in wastewater effluents, which isn't very surprising considering how much we, we use. And the published work we have also shows that if we took sediment cores out of lakes, we could see their usage over time and how it changed, which was rather interesting because you could see them introduced into the sediment cores around 1930, which is when the chemicals kind of first came to market and usage rapidly increased up until about 1970s. And then actually it dropped off dramatically. And then you can see it slowly start to increase again. And our hypothesis is that dramatic drop was actually due to the Clean Water Act. And that it was a signal that we actually improved our wastewater treatment and improved the removal of these chemicals. And that the, you know, slower increase over the 90s to, to present is, you know, increased consumer use over time. And what we're looking at now is for that signal in wastewater influent and effluent that we collected during the pandemic to see whether or not we can actually pick up the increased usage that uh, was going on. Well, you're doing it at the effluent sites of wastewater treatment, or you're doing it at the site, like at a coffee place where people are cleaning the counters 8 billion times a day. Like, no, where is this experimentation happening? So we're doing this experimentation at wastewater treatment plants because they integrate the total usage of both consumer and commercial and industrial products. And the signals we see are very consistent with consumer products or what's used in, in disinfectants versus like some kind of industrial surfactant or the like. So what is the goal? Is this to characterize the levels nowadays or are you looking into the health effects? Like what's, what's the goal of your research right now? 
our, our goal right now is to look at how much is getting into the environment, how far it transports in the environment, and also the effects that these biologically active chemicals may have on the operation of wastewater treatment plants, which have are, are largely driven by biological processes. Right? We use bacteria in multiple different ways within wastewater treatment plants to degrade, uh, well, to, to process our, our sewage. But if we put something in the wastewater treatment plants that's antibacterial, we could disrupt that process. And so we're trying to evaluate if the levels were using or have been using during the pandemic are affecting the effectiveness of wastewater treatment. Have you sampled the wastewater going through a plant, you know, before flocculation, before and after settlement tanks, et cetera, to see like how the, the levels change after each stage? That is what my graduate student's going to do next week. <laughs> oh, good. Um, what data do you have currently? Or is it is this literally a brand new thing that you're doing that you don't know anything about yet? Oh, uh, we have quite a bit of data and don't want to talk about it too much because we're about to publish it. But I mean, we do see that there are, uh, well, I'll say high levels of these compounds coming into to wastewater treatment plants, hundreds of micrograms per liter, potentially. And that actually the wastewater treatment plants do a very good job of removing them on a percentage basis. But we're trying to figure out now is whether or not there are patterns in the removal effectiveness, depending on the influent concentration and whether some compounds are removed better than others. And we haven't fully mined that data yet. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, I mean, so once the wastewater has been uh, treated, where does it go and the levels of the plots in them, how would that affect where it goes next? Yeah, and so... One of my collaborators, well, okay, I'll start with this here, is the wastewater goes in, usually into a river or a lake. Every once in a while, it's discharged into groundwater, but almost most places it, it flows into rivers. And so part of this project also, we're sampling the rivers downstream of wastewater treatment plants and the sediments to see where the compounds wind up, right? And our expectation is that a fair amount of them will wind up in the sediment, uh, giving their chemical characteristics, but we also want to see if photochemistry or microbiology is processing them within the water column. And one of the concerns we have, is, or one of the questions we have, and this is a collaboration with my uh, partners at Marquette University, uh, Pat McNamara and Chris Marshall, is what kind of antibiotic resistance profiles we see in the environment or in uh, wastewater effluent in terms of, of course, I think I just bungled how I said that. We're interested in the antibiotic resistant profiles in either environmental samples or in wastewater effluent samples and see if we can detect any effect of the QACs on that profile. Has anyone looked at um, regular services like a table in a restaurant and looked at the natural microbes that are on the table and then after you spray it to death for plots over however long, how, how the natural microbes have changed? I'm, I'm going to say the answer is almost certainly yes, but you've 
gone beyond my area of expertise. All right, no problem. I mean, well, so in wastewater treatment, do you notice that um, depending on the level and types of thoughts that are there, that certain microbes will either be present or not present? Or is the active wastewater treatment get rid of so many microbes that it wouldn't really be useful to think about it either? So again, that's a tough question. And so this requires kind of metagenomic analyses. And that's some of the things that we're planning on doing is to try and see what the community looks like under different quaternary ammonium compound conditions. One thing that is known is that if organisms are resistant to quaternary ammonium compounds, they also tend to be resistant to other antibiotics. And that's just because the mechanism by which bacteria are have resistance to quaternary ammonium compounds is something called usually an efflux pump, where they just pump it out of their cell. And so that will give resistance to other kinds of uh, antibiotics as well. Maybe that um, administration of antibiotic tends to be coincident with the presence of quats, you know, for cleaning. But again, then again, people take antibiotics at home and all that stuff. But um, I don't know, maybe they they come together and that's why bacteria are resistant to one and resistant to another. Because they'll I come think, in time, you know, close. I think that's probably part of it. But I think a major component of it, and again, we're drifting into the edges of my expertise, is that the quaternary ammonia compounds have been around for a long time. And so the resistance mechanisms are pretty well established. And that mechanism is kind of a general resistance mechanism that's, uh, that facilitates resistance to lots of different kinds of chemicals. That makes sense too, yeah. It could be a lot of different things, you're right. So what, um, what do you hope to determine based on your analysis of water treatment plants? Um, how to run the treatment plants in such a way as to further reduce quats into the environment? Or like, what's the end goal of this research? End goal of the research is to figure out if there's sustainable ways to use quaternary ammonium compounds or if we ought to have recommendations to use them in certain scenarios or, you know, we might find that so much of them is removed. We're not worried about it. They're degradable, but I don't think we know enough about their environmental fate to make a good assessment of of whether or not we're using them in an appropriate manner. Is there any metric by which they're quote unquote overused versus underused? Like how would you even determine that? Yeah. And I, I think we'll probably have some suggestions for how to do that. And I, you know, some obvious ones would be if you are affecting the waste operation of the, the wastewater treatment plant, that's problematic, right? Because wastewater treatment plants have specific goals they need to meet. And if the QACs are disrupting that, they're going to have to spend extra money to get rid of the QACs, which gets passed on to, to consumers. And the other would be either health-related effects, which are beyond our way to do things, or if we see something in terms of resistance or accumulation in the environment that causes us concern. Hmm, okay. So typically the fate of this wastewater will it'll go back into the ocean or streams, I guess, during, you know, during storm conditions, but during regular conditions, where does it go in the areas they're studying it? Oh, I mean, that's where it always goes, right? Because you have a continuous flow of, of wastewater from people flushing their toilets and uh, the wastewater treatment plant, you know, it removes is wastewater treatment plants are very good at doing this, right? They remove carbon, they remove nitrogen, uh, they remove chemicals, not necessarily they're purposely trying to remove chemicals, but they do get removed. And that water has to go somewhere. And it, the obvious outfall is in, in a river or a lake. And oftentimes the water that comes out of wastewater treatment plants is actually cleaner than the water in the river or lake it's going into it by lots of metrics. And sometimes even there, are, if you've got an agriculturally impacted river with pesticides and other things like that, 
the wastewater may actually dilute those. But I mean, we know that pesticides and antibiotics and other things like that come through wastewater as well. We've got projects exactly looking at that. We've got one project looking at antibiotics in wastewater and how persistent they are in streams, and another one that's looking at insecticides. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's difficult because each it's like kind of recursive. This can influence that, which influences it, which influences that again. It's 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 tough. Yeah. Because you, right. you said there's like a pretty high presence of antibiotics and supporting area ammonium compounds in wastewater as well, and bacteria. Yeah. yeah, and then we find things that you seem kind of odd too, where you know neonicotinoid insecticides, which are commonly sprayed on crops or put in is seed coatings, right? They're one of the most highly used insecticides in the world now, but you find them in wastewater effluent as well. And it's not because we're, I mean, we spray, we use them in households, right? They're used for bed bugs and other things like that. They could be flea and tick medications for dogs, but also they might arise from materials that we consume, right? If crops or something were treated with those chemicals, we may ingest them and excrete them and they wind up in the wastewater treatment plant. And so you find agricultural chemicals in wastewater and you find antibiotics in agricultural environments because they're given to animals. And it's a, a large complex puzzle of trying to figure out where the chemicals come from. So what do you think is going to be, um, I don't know, some information that's considered either breakthrough or informative based on your, your studies and your research? I'll say one of the most interesting things we're working on at the moment, not that everything we're not doing isn't interesting to me, is we've been looking at fluorinated pharmaceuticals and pesticides. And I'm sure you've heard of PFAS, and these are the per and polyfluorochemicals that are mm-hmm. concern, concerned contaminating groundwater and drinking water and the like. Uh, but it turns out we use fluorine much more broadly than that. And so a lot of medications and pesticides also contain fluorine because it makes them work better, right? It, it changes the molecular structure slightly. It makes them more biologically active or makes them go through your intestinal wall to help facilitate treatment, makes them more stable so they don't degrade as quickly. And we're looking at how these other fluorinated chemicals are processed in the environment and trying to figure out what other fluorochemicals might be being produced that we're not aware of because we're so focused on PFAS there might be other sources of fluorinated chemicals in the environment as well. Did you say uh, there's a lot of chlorinated or fluorinated? Fluorinated. FL. FL, fluorinated. Because I know there's a lot of chlorinated compounds too, but that's other sources, but fluorinated, okay. Yes. And And fluoride is put into water itself as well. And, And this is where we get into the subtlety of fluoride versus fluorine, right? And so fluoride, right, is for dental treatment. And fluorine is what's referred to when you're bonded to carbon, usually there's a, or, or for fluorochemicals or the element fluorine. And one of the major degradation products of fluorinated pesticides or fluorinated pharmaceuticals could be fluoride. And that would be a relatively low concern. But what we're interested in, are we producing other persistent fluorinated chemicals where we don't know their structure and we don't know their biological activity? And there are many cases from past research where we discover we have one chemical that transforms into another that's more toxic or is of an environmental concern. And we're trying to, to track down whether that might be the case for some of these uh, fluorinated molecules. Hmm, understood. Is there a, um, I don't know, has anyone tried to characterize as many of the chemicals in a given effluent as possible? Like, do you have any sense that there are thousands of them, hundreds of thousands of them? Like how, quote unquote, clean is the water or how heterogeneous is it? So you're very good at anticipating what we're going to do next. 
So well, good. Uh, we suspect it will likely be hundreds, right? Because you'll have a mixture of the poly and perfluorochemicals because of the use in household goods and, you know, stain repellents, nonstick coatings that are constantly leaching off into wastewater, plus all of the medications and pesticides that we use. There should be hundreds of different chlorinated chemicals in wastewater. And finding a good way to quantify them all is difficult, right? Because you don't always know what you're looking for. And so our, our plan is to use a combination of mass spectrometry and nuclear magnetic resonance or kind of MRI type analyses to try and do these balances. What about the presence of um, microplastics? That seems to be a new thing that is showing up everywhere. You know, have you seen that they're in the wastewater you guys work with? Are you looking for them and are they interacting with all these chemicals and bacteria? Excellent question. So microplastics, I purposely try and avoid looking at microplastics. That's another complicated area. And one of my colleagues does that and I'm trying not to step on her toes, but we, we have a, a project we're looking at together or we don't have a project. We've made a, we have a proposal to assess that exact question because almost certainly, well, I will say certainly in wastewater, there is micro, there are microplastics, right? That That's a known at this point. And an open question is what chemicals do they transport, which probably depends on where the water comes from, right? So wastewater is going to be have different, the microplastics in wastewater will have different chemicals associated with it than will microplastics that are coming from agricultural fields because of the tarps or the mulching films that are used. And those might be different from the microplastics that are in stormwater, just based on the chemical profile, what's used in agriculture, what's used in urban environments outside. And then once you have those particles transporting, do they release those chemicals? Are the microplastics taken up into plants or into animals? And are the chemicals released? And I think that's, you put your finger on where the field is right now is trying to answer that question. Hmm. Well, I, know, I know you don't want to, you know, obviously step on toes, but I would guess that uh, hopefully they share research results with you and vice versa. To oh, absolutely. Doing that, right? Yes. Yeah. And we find the, we find ways to, to, to work together, but my lab doesn't, my lab itself doesn't work in microplastics. I'm more interested in the chemicals that might be stuck on microplastics, whereas uh, my colleague Boya Zhang is interested in uh, microplastics and how they form and how they're processed. So that's, that's Are there very a novel? Sorry, go ahead. Uh, are there novel chemical compounds that you're seeing up here in wastewater that weren't there before it uh, entered the plant? Is anyone looking at that? Before? You know, if you look at the effluent before and after, and you try to completely characterize it, are there new compounds that are showing up um, as the, the water goes through the waste treatment plant, maybe caused by interaction with microplastics or caused by flocculation or some of the other chemical processes that go on? Yeah, we have not looked at that, although I would hypothesize that that would be true, right? Just because the microplastics are going to undergo sharing process and be exposed to the biological environments that they will change and things will leach out of them. But I would have to do some searching to see what people have seen on that specific topic. And how variable is the, I'm sure it's very variable, but how variable is the feedstock to you know the water treatment plants or plants that you work with? Have you characterized that or does that not seem to yeah, bother your results at all? It, so what comes into the waste fire treatment plant is going to vary over different time scales. And what we've been looking at is kind of on a monthly time scale to try and get more of what a seasonal variation might be. And the challenge is that there are two competing factors and one is the weather. And so 
bacteria tend to be more efficient when it's warm. And so the processing of chemicals will be different under different temperatures in the wastewater treatment plant. And also chemical usage will change with the season as various aspects of life change, right? More people get colds in the winter, more people are sick. So drug usage may be higher in colder times than higher than in warmer times as well. And, you know, we'd see allergy medications more in the summer, bug sprays and insecticides more in the summer and wastewater as people spray them on themselves. So there are those dynamics we'd see over the longer time frames, And then even on a daily basis, right, uh, between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m., the flows to wastewater treatment plants are much lower and the kind of chemicals that are discharged are going to be different than during the day when everyone takes their shower in the morning, right? And so there'll be hourly dynamics that occur in wastewater treatment as well. And those are interesting to look at, but also expensive to do high-frequency sampling like that. Yeah, that's true. And now I was thinking, you know, when uh, when COVID started and people were home, I'm sure that dramatically changed the volume and what was in uh, wastewater. And then throughout the whole thing, it's changing and changing and changing. So. Yeah. And, and people couldn't see the doctor to get specific medications. Um, yeah. I mean, the dynamics are what's going on in the world is going to matter as, as well. And, and what goes into the wastewater treatment plant. And so they have to be very robust systems and the people that run them are very good at doing so to keep them operating. Is there a particular plant or plants that you stick with and sample from over and over again, or do you go to different plants? Uh, we've got a consortium. We, we've been working now with plants in three states, and I'm trying to count in my head here quickly. We've been working with about a dozen different plants that are in different climates and different areas of the country and have different treatment processes associated with uh, their treatment trains, but I can't tell you where they are. Oh, no, that's fine. I just didn't know if you go to the, the same ones over and over and uh, you know, if there's any interesting or noticeable differences in the plants that you work with. Yeah, I mean, we, we do see differences in how the wastewater, we do see effects of the treatment train on the removal of, of chemicals. And so that's giving us some insight into what might be better ways to, or ways to improve the removal of chemicals in wastewater treatment plants. Okay. Well, very good. Um, Bill, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? And uh, you said you have a paper that hopefully will be coming soon. I guess it's going through peer review shortly. Um, you know, again, where's a, a good place for people to keep tabs on what you're doing? Yeah. So I try and keep my website up to date, which is williamarnold.org. And the a fantastic tool is Google Scholar. And if you search William Arnold, you'll find any of our research papers. And several of the most recent, one, recent ones are open access. And so they're freely available for everyone to read. Hmm. Okay. All right. Those are the two best places then. Yeah. Well, Bill, thanks for coming on the, the podcast. And I know I asked you a lot of questions again that were on the edge of, of what you're working on. And that happens all the very time. Difficult. Yeah. But thanks for, you know, for being good with them. And uh, thanks for coming. Thanks for your time. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.